Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. You have to put the lower slats and they fall into through. the position. And every time I tried to slip it over, it was like dominoes. It would just fall off. through. And fall Dad, through. Just, he, you kept getting closer and closer to you just over my shoulder. And then without any prompt, you started to displace a hand on these, to uh, help on you. these lower planks. To help you to push the thing together I'm to help you. Yes, he threw me, threw me out of my own backyard. <laughs> This is General George Washington, and you're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. So we're going to do something a little bit different today. I'm not going to concentrate on the basketball last night or the draft lottery or, you know, the Nats or anything like that, because I want to get right to Andy Beyer, because Andy's making room for us today, and I appreciate that. Um, The last time we talked, uh, Mage did not come up, and then Mage won a pretty good Kentucky Derby. Uh, down the last quarter or so, took over the race. It was, it was really quite fast and quite good. As you reviewed that race, what did you think of Mage's performance? Well, I was uh, dubious about Mage going into the Kentucky Derby uh, just on historical grounds. I mean, the whole history of the Derby says that horses really need enough experience and you know foundation uh, in in order to win the Derby, and you know, Mage didn't pass any of the, the the tests. He'd only raced three times in his career. He'd never raced as a two year old. Uh, you know, we always joke that, 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 that this was the curse of Apollo. Who I think ran in eighteen ninety two without uh, you know without running as a two year old, and he won, and then like eighty years passed and no other horse could do it. Um, but Mage ran, uh, you know, a very respectable race with, you know, with, with, you know, with so little experience behind him. Um, you know, he came from, you know, w- way in the back of the pack, yeah. you know, f- finished strongly. I mean, uh, uh, he, uh, you know, he, uh, you know, he, it was legit, and his his speed figure for the race, a hundred five, was uh, one of the best in several years. So I, I guess I would have to say he he's a legitimate horse. Uh, uh, but we'll, uh, 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 you know, unfortunately, not get really must have much of a further test for him in the Preakness on Saturday because I, I think it's safe to say that this is maybe the worst Preakness ever. So I, I heard about this. I heard that not a single horse from the Kentucky Derby other than Mage is entered in the Preakness, and I can't... It's unfathomable to me that everybody, not everybody, but eight or ten horses continue from the Derby to the Preakness most of the time. There's a lot of money in there, and it's a triple crown race. Why is this happening? Right. Well, th- this is unfortunately a continuation of a trend that has been going on for some time. I mean, uh, trainers nowadays don't like to run their horses, you know, on, with with short rest. They like to, you know, space uh, races out, uh, you know, maybe several weeks apart, and increasingly. Uh, uh, in, in the Preakness, the losers see no incentive uh, to you know to continue on from the Derby into the Preakness. Uh, the, the winner of the Pre uh, the winner of the Derby will come to the Preakness because he could win the Triple Crown. Yeah. You know he's the most 
temporarily the most celebrated horse in the country. You got to take a shot at it. But uh, I mean, there, I mean, there's an answer to all this, and that is uh, something that's bad, been batted around unsuccessfully for years, and it's just to change the timing of the races. Uh, you know, push the Preakness back to three weeks behind the Derby, run the Belmont sometime around Memorial Day, and you can eliminate this issue. But uh, uh, the racing. Uh, the racing industry is not necessarily one to make changes radically, and uh, uh, but 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 if but if this year's fiasco do, you know doesn't prompt a, a a real revision of the series, I I, I can't imagine what they're what they can do to uh, to prevent for this from happening again. Andy, if Mage wins, or even if Mage doesn't win. Do you expect some of the good horses from the Derby to enter the Belmont? Because that would be a five-week rest period. Um, they, they, they might, uh, but but again, you know, mile and a half races uh, are uh, you know have become kind of an anachronism in in American racing. I mean, if they're let's say, and, and so trainers don't necessarily uh, look to to run horses at that distance unless they think they're really cut out for the uh uh the distance so uh uh if you know the the Belmont could could be a uh you know a, a pretty unimposing field too it just depends on individual horses decisions but you know the the you know if, unless you're going for the triple crown these races uh don't necessarily mean that much to owners and trainers unless they perceive that individual, you know, like mile-and-a-half Belmont as a race that, that they think they could win. I wanted to see Mage run against Forte. Uh, Forte's blocked from entering the Preakness. I don't know if he will enter the Belmont, but the way you're describing this, Andy, we could get an inadequate Triple Crown winner. The Triple Crown has always seemed to me to be the you know the benchmark of greatness for a horse, right? And and if you're not running against anybody, then what is it? Right. I mean, this is 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 really kind of pitiful. And and uh, uh, and Fort, who, uh, whom I would choose to pronounce correctly. Oh, okay, Fort. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, no. I, the whole racing world uh, pronounces him Forte, but uh, let's say the. Let's, we we English majors from uh, Harvard uh, <laughs> would use Fort. Uh, uh, he but but you know that's another you know uh, uh, subtext of, of of this whole race. I mean, Fort was found to have had a medication infraction going all the way uh, back to Saratoga last year. And he should have been suspended, uh, you know, along the way. And the, uh, you know, the lawyer for, uh, uh, you know, for for Pletcher and owner Mike Propoli, you know, just kept getting continuances and putting it off and putting it off and 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 burying this story until it uh, until it finally came out and. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, Ford. A lot of, 
you know, won his races on the way to the Kentucky Derby, uh, you know, during a period when he, he, he and, and the trainer should have been suspended. Mm-hmm. So this, it's, it's, it is a, let us say, a murky situation as well. But, what, what, you know, when you consider that, uh, you know, Bob Baffert was given a, a you know, a really stiff two-year uh, suspension from the Derby because of a medication viola- violation, and then Todd Pletcher just kept kept putting off, putting off any kind of adjudication, and they finally, in the last week, gave him a, like a ten day suspension. But it's one that's going to uh, keep him and the horse out of the Belmont. I mean, it is a real mess. That sounds bad. You want to pick a winner for us in the Preakness? I assume you got one. I like mage. <laughs> right, it's, uh, right. Uh, it, you know, it's it's such a uh, uh, it, it's such a weak field. Um, you know, you, you do have an interesting horse, National Treasure. That's Baffert. Ran okay in Cal- in Just... California this winter. Baffert was not allowed to be the trainer, you know, because of the Churchill suspension. Now, you know, Baffert is back, so right. that you know that that horse is okay. But uh, and it was a first name First Mission, who's won two of his three starts. By he's from trainer Brad Cox, who just who lately just seems to win everything. So you know there are there are horses who uh, you know who can step up if uh, if Mage doesn't run his race. But you know if if Mage comes close to duplicating his Derby. Um, you know, I think he's going to win, and we, you know, we will go three weeks from now. We will be talking about the most anticlimactic triple crown bid we've ever seen. Well, we're going to do that. You and I are going to do that in three weeks. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> okay, Tony. The industry should give you an award for being the last member of the mainstream media who cares about the triple. I'm so old, that's why I care. Andy Byer, boys and girls, will take a break. Liz Clark will join us when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. Claiborne, Chris McAllister, Dante Culpepper, Cade McNown, Troy Edwards, John Tate, and finally, finally, Anthony McFarland. Were they on the take? Were they on the graft? Were they just stupid? Were they all daft? The 14 players taken before Booger McFarland in the 99 draft. Booger McFarland in the 99 draft. Tim Couch, number one. Donovan McNabb, Akili Smith, Andrew and James, Ricky Williams, Tory Holt, Champ, Bailey, David. 
Boston, Chris Claiborne, Chris McAllister, Dante Culpepper, Cade McNown, Troy Edward, John Tate, then finally, finally, Anthony McFarland. Were they on the take? Were they on the graft? Were they just stupid? Were they all daft? The 14 players taken before Booger McFarland in the 99 draft. Booger McFarland in the 99 draft. Ooh. It's a genius. Chan Byrne, he writes a note. I hate to let a challenge go on that. <laughs> and he did it. He man. writes the song. Yeah, thank you, The Dan. 14 players taken before Booger McFarland in the 99 draft. I will be sending this to Booger later I hope he just today. plays this on repeat on the range before a round of golf. <laughs> just unbelievable. Get you ready Send for it to Booger. Absolutely. Liz Clark joins us now on the occasion of, because we love Liz Clark, anyway. Uh. But um, the French Open is coming up really soon. And the greatest player in the history of the French Open... But I mean, nobody would deny this at all. Rafael Nadal may not play in the French Open. What are you hearing about Nadal's status, not just for the French Open, but forever and ever and ever at this point? Uh, thank you for having me. I, um, this is very bittersweet. I mean, I, I covered his first French Open victory at when he had just turned 19, and I covered his most recent just last summer. So in a way, I feel like I know his story, but to prepare to talk to you, I, I've really been studying the numbers and the record, and it's just mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing, but nothing that I'm hearing is good. Or, and, you know, he's the one pulling out of each tournament. You know, he's, yeah. he's you know, it's his words, and he's just saying um, – you know, he's not able, hasn't been able to practice at a high level. And, you know, this takes time. So he has withdrawn from every clay court preparatory event in the run-up to this French Open. And he has never contested a French Open without competing on at least one clay event. He hasn't played on clay since a year ago. And he's only played four matches this year. Um, so, he, you know, he, he's injured. I cannot see him, a, you know, just showing up at the French and playing his way into form. That, that's not how he rolls. You know? Do you think, I mean, you've watched him for the length mm. and breadth of his career. If he can't play in the French Open, mm-hmm. do you think he's done? Do you think he says, that's it, I step away? That, boy, I... I don't know. That that really goes beyond. I mean, I'd, I'd be faking that I know him well enough to, to even answer that. You know, I do know that he, he loves tennis, and he is not chasing numbers, even though that's hard for everyone to believe. Of course, he's tied at 22 majors with Novak, but that's not what is keeping him in it. He loves to compete, and so... Certainly the French Open has a special place in his heart, and the clay court service has an extraordinary place in his repertoire. I mean, he's, he's just a genius on that surface. But, you know, if he wants to keep competing, I, 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 think, I don't think it will be just because, oh, I missed the French, I, I must now stop. But, but that said, you know, if... If it's not bringing him joy, um, and now he, he's also said he loves the pain. You know, he loves the struggle, that that's the price you pay. He loves paying this price. But I just have to wonder, 
Um, you know, he's going to turn 37 in a couple weeks. He has a child. Um, you know, your priorities in life shift, and he he's not a normal guy. No one who's number one in the world at anything is a is someone we can really relate to, you know, given what they sacrificed to get there. It's a really special breed of cat. But, um, I, yeah, I, I, I know I sound like I'm tap dancing, but it's, it's difficult to say. I, I would think this might be his last year, this competing. Yeah. Um, and even though the French ex- extracts the most from an athlete, it's so damn grueling. Um, it's also the one he, he he's best suited to win. You know, it would be a push to say he could win on a hard, a major on a hard court or, um, or at Wimbledon uh, at this stage in his career. I assume that you love him and I assume oh. you love him because you love Federer and if yeah. you love Federer, you have to love Nadal because they're fire and ice. You have yeah. to love them both, right? Yeah, in different ways. <laughs> and it's just like, it's a mixture of respect, awe, um, just genuine appreciation. Um, and and in a, another level, just a, a firsthand over 15 plus years, seeing the way they treat others. It's it's a lovely thing, and by that I don't mean the way they treat reporters. I mean the right. way they treat security people, or towel people, or little kids, or older people. Just you know, the most exceptional sportsmen, um, and the affection and regard for one another. Even though they could take the view, oh, that's the guy who denied me X number of majors. It's the opposite. You know, it's, that's the guy who lifted me beyond what I thought I could ever achieve. It, it's a tremendous bromance, you know, that, that I just love. He cried when Federer retired. Was he yeah. crying for himself as well as for Federer? Did, because, I mean, if you're, if you're him and Federer retires, you do say to yourself, it's not long for me now. I mean, for sure, but I don't think it was egocentric. I don't think it was that. It's just, I mean, not so much I see my my exit. I see the end of my career mm-hmm. at the end of his career. I think it's more he's my favorite playmate. I mean, that's, you know, that's, right. that's a, not, you know, it's just who who will push me in, in a way that I... I, you know, and obviously Novak has pushed him quite a bit, but but it's a real special relationship. But, you know, we cry also just when a great artist dies. You know, we cry when Prince dies and or David Bowie dies. You know, it can be that too. Just someone who, you know, my my narrative isn't based on their narrative, but boy, I appreciate the genius of that person and I mourn the silencing of that voice, you know, in a way. I think it was that, too. Well, I mean, you, if you are a sports writer mm. uh, and you look at Nadal now and you know how much he's pushed his body and he has yeah. injuries that don't heal. They just yeah. don't heal. They're muscle tears that stay with him for years and years and years. As you step one step back with Federer gone and Nadal out, it's the lane is just so wide open for Djokovic unless you tell me Carlos Alcaraz is better. 
I think at this moment, Alcaraz is better, certainly on clay. I mean, Novak, although I have absolute regard for what he has achieved, he he's struggling with an elbow injury, as I understand it. He had a surgery on an elbow. He's not... Um, I mean, of course, he he started the season winning the Australian Open to tie Nadal yeah. at 22. So big wow! But the, you know, the, his clay court tune-up has has not been been great. Um, but that said, he is 35 and has won 22 majors, and there is an exceptional, super rare expertise that comes with. That, you know, knowing how to manage a slam, how do I get to seven victories and best of five that very few people know as well as Novak, how to manage yourself. Mm -hmm. And Alcaraz being just turned 20, I believe, is, uh, of course he wouldn't know that, but he has youth and he, he, he suffered kind of a freakish early loss um, at the Italian just, I think, last week. But, you know, nothing that sends a flare like, oh, my God, he's injured. He won't be himself. You know, he will be the top seed at the French Open, Alcaraz, because he will uh, retake the number one. So it'll be uh, Alcaraz and Novak seeded one and two. Nadal is now dropped to 14th in the world. Um, Who doesn't play? Again, Huh? He, doesn't, he doesn't play, so of course. Yeah, he, yeah, no, he hasn't played in more than four months. He hasn't yeah. played anything yeah. since um, the Australian Open, where he he was injured. Um, so and hasn't played on clay again in twelve months. So um, yeah, it, it is wide open. Uh, the everything I think in men's tennis, honestly, is wide open um, at the moment, and you, you'd have to favor Novak in every slam, yeah. except. Alcaraz, I, I'm, I might favor him to win this French Open. What a joy to have you on and to just listen ah! to your voice. Oh How's retirement? Goodness. Is it working out? You know, every day is domestic bliss. I, 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 and people would mock the banality of my days, I'm sure. But I just, I'm like doing a medley of yard work and housework. I'm sewing. I'm cooking. I'm putting lawn, a lawnmower together. I mean, like, all these things that are just fascinating and great fun and and hanging with the dog a lot. Oh, and then some culture, you know, movies, museums. It's great. It's, it's good. just great. It's good. All right, we'll see you soon. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Okay. Liz Bye-bye. Clark, boys and girls. We will come back with... Um, who's what next? Is Doug Ferguson next? Yes. Doug Ferguson. We're going to talk about PGA. I'm Tony Kornheiser. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. So we played a song recently by Mike Steinell. Jazz song. I'm not the world's greatest jazz guy. But it was great. Yes. Then we find out he's a genius. (laughs) And he sends us this song called Something Died in My Garage. 
And he says, I'm a retired jazz professor from the University of North Texas who during the pandemic has been writing music that addresses life's most difficult issues. In that spirit, I offer you and your listeners something died in my garage. I know there are many out there that have suffered the same situation might find comfort in this piece of music. By the way, I play all the instruments. I do all the singing. You'll have to judge for yourself whether that's positive or negative. And finally, I've had some comments about my pronunciation of garage generally turned into one syllable. All I can say is I grew up in Kansas, and that's the way we say it, garage. I'm certain this will drive Nigel nuts. By the way, we also say wash instead of wash. <laughs> now enjoy the song while I go out and wash the car. Garage. Mike Steinel. Yeah. Talented. Yeah. Wow. It's a total wow. He plays in Doug Ferguson of the Associated Press, who was in Rochester, New York at Oak Hill for the PGA coming up this week. And, and the first question I would ask is a question that indicates where I was born and where I was raised and where I went to college. Because I know how cold it can be in May in upstate New York. I've been in upstate New York on May 17th when there were three inches of snow blanketing Binghamton and Ithaca and Rochester is further up and closer to a lake. So what's the, we- what's the prediction of the weather and is anybody sort of scared that having a major in upstate New York at this time is risky? Tony, I'm disappointed that we couldn't have had this conversation yesterday. It was magnificent. It was probably 65. It felt like springtime and anywhere else in the country. And it was 38 degrees when I walked in this morning. (laughs) (laughs) I ran into, there's a South African player named Aki Stridham. And at 6.57, he's standing on the 10th tee ready to play a practice round. I walked past him and I said, have you no friends at all? (laughs) And he's He's by himself, and I mean, it, it looks like it looked like a ghost town at seven o'clock. Usually on a on a Wednesday at seven o'clock before the major, especially you know, especially the PGA, you know, you got guys on the range on the practice screen. They're going to go play nine or eighteen and and get their work done and be done with it. There was nobody on the course except law enforcement, uh, you know, keeping the the massive crowd, which was nobody either. Yeah, it's freezing right now, but it'll be fine the rest of the week. I think. I think this was just a. Um, Northerly, I'm not a, <clears throat> I'm not a weather guy, but whatever the, the whatever system came through that, that made us freeze our cojones off. It's, uh, it'll, <clears throat> it'll clear up by tomorrow. I think they're going to get some, maybe some rain on on Saturday, and then should be fine on Sunday. So you're looking at mid 60s for the week. They got, did they get lucky? You would know better than I would. But I, I, I would fun. say, I mean, you know, having spent my college years in Binghamton, having spent my summers uh, in. The northern part of Pennsylvania, right, sort of equidistant uh, on the same line, basically, the east-west line as Binghamton. And, and knowing that area, I mean, it can get bad. See, this is the, the thing that's interesting is, as everybody knows, the PGA used to be the last of the majors. Yeah. And then it was moved into the slot because it's the least of the majors. So it was moved into the slot after the Masters and before the two Opens. And I wondered, and you would know better than I, if there was consideration that the traditional sites for the PGA that include Massachusetts and Michigan and Minnesota yeah. and upstate New York, if, if, if that puts these tourna- puts these clubs in jeopardy for never getting the PGA again. It does. And, and they, they announced it in 2017 is when they said, okay, we're moving, we're moving to May. The trouble was Oak Hill was already locked in for 23. So that was kind of their last hurdle. If we can just get past Oak Hill and not get snowed out, um, 
you know, and, and then we'll be fine. But the kind of the tragedy to it was, to your very point, uh, they can't go to a place like Oak Hill going forward. They can't go to, you know, Whistling Straits was one of their go-to places for the Ryder Cup and the PGA. Can't not going to North and Milwaukee in in uh, in May. No, and so now they're looking at places like Louisville and 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 Dallas. Um, they still haven't found a place in, in Florida because there's nowhere to go in Florida except one place at Doral, and they're not going there. Um, they're they're very limited in where they're going. They're going to San Francisco, things like that. But to me, some of the best courses in our country are up here in New York, in Mass. Uh, Long Island, which, by the way, they did Beth page if you remember, back in 19. And I remember that first day, it was probably 45 degrees on Monday, and then it, and then it warmed up the rest of the week. Um, but it, that's the one drawback to this, is that it really shuts out, uh, I think, the best part of our country. Yeah, you're, you're locking these people out from the tournament they are most likely to host. You can't host the Masters. So that gives you two tournaments, the U.S. Open, which some of these places really can't host because they're old and traditional and relatively small, but at least the weather is a lot better. It's an interesting thing to me. Sometimes, you know, Doug, I think to myself, I don't know why they don't play everything in the West because that way you get a better television audience. I mean, it goes yeah. later, right? It does, and, and you know, they've, they did that with Tories. Remember the year, the year that Tiger won? That was yep. the first time that they did, you know, basically prime time for the, for the U.S. Open, and they killed it, and they got lucky by having, you know, one of the great U.S. Opens of all time. They'll do it again for, um, they did it at Pebble, couple years ago they'll do it at la this year and so the, the west coast is becoming a lot more prominent what's interesting to your point um about some of these classic courses that are too small i wouldn't be surprised to see the u.s open head back to riviera in i think 2031 they're looking at that is a magnificent golf course with a really tiny footprint as it yeah. comes to the you know the the bells and whistles that come with with hosting a major but i think they're going to try and pull it off the U.S. Uh, Open, and I don't know how we got on this topic, but they, they are now looking at places where they can go ahead and only have 20000 for the week. They can downsize it uh, and, then, and then make their money when they go to the, the, the big properties. It's interesting because everybody who knows somebody who belongs to some place, when you get a major, it is, it's a really big deal. And when they take it away from you, you know, the, like yeah. the people at Congressional, when you lose them, you go, ooh, and you get bad publicity, and Rory wins by 100 shots, and there's water all over the course. I'll move on. Uh, yeah. The Saudi Tour guys, they did very well in the Masters, very yeah. well. How many are going to play in the PGA, and was there, was there a deliberate attempt to keep them from having press conferences? No, no, not at all. There was uh, – someone made a point of that, and um, – like Mickelson was asked and declined. Oh. And so, yeah, now he's going to, I mean, he'll, he said he's willing to, to talk when he's done with the practice round, whatever that is, probably not today. Um, but he just didn't want to come into a formal one. And, and it, they never heard back from Dustin and, and Brooks's people um, until they'd already posted the schedule. Brooks and Dustin are both coming in today. Uh, so that was, that was a little bit overstated. It's actually, there's, there's a normalization to it. It's kind of interesting. I think there was great curiosity not so much by us and the public, but also, you know, also some of the players. How's it going to work at the Masters, um, you know, with these live guys uh, commingling with, with, the, with the loyalists, if you want to call it that. And when we got to Augusta, it was fine. I mean, we forget these guys are golfers. They're not confrontational. They don't hit each other. Um, they're all very distinguished, and everybody gets along just fine. So you come to the PGA, and if I were to be honest with you, Tony, it is, it is really not much of a story. 
they're just they're just guys who play golf and they happen to play for a different tour and whatever angst or curiosity is is largely gone that's that does interest me and i understand that between the golfers but i think if dustin johnson or brooks kept or cam smith won a major yeah. I think it would revive that story, and I think it would inflame that story. You, I take it you don't, Doug. Yeah, well, no, no, no. I, we haven't seen that part yet. We've only been to, to one major. That's and, right. You know, to your, to your point, they they played really well, and and actually, I thought it was handled pretty well because it was an easy target for Brooks to have the fifty-four hole lead in Augusta and and not win because it was a really easy setup to say, yeah, too bad you're not at live. You'd have won this thing. Because you guys only play 54 holes, right. this is what happens, and he plays 72. Well, what happened is he was playing against John Rahm, who's really good, and, and Brooks held his own. Mickelson, to me, is kind of curious because I, he, he hasn't impressed you as a, as a player. He hasn't done anything on, on live. He finishes like 30th every week, and there's only 48 guys in the field. <laughs> Augusta it brings out the best in Phil, just like yeah. it does Fred Couples, just like it does Bernhard Longer, for crying out loud. He always seems at age 65 to, to make a cut and do whatever. You know, some guys just play well at Augusta because that's what makes the Masters special. What Phil does this week at Oak Hill is probably a better indication of, of what a 52-year-old who can't crack an egg on the live tour is going to do out here. Kepka, on the other hand, uh, you would expect to do well. Dustin Johnson, the way he played last week, and he's apparently he lost like 20 pounds because he, he took the offseason off and, and had love handles and everything else and was out of shape. Now he's back in form. This guy is still a great player. So when you get to the point where a live guy wins, yeah, then we start looking at things a little bit differently. I agree with that. that point yet. I agree with that. The most outspoken pro PGA Tour guy was Rory McIlroy. Mm. Rory is now speaking in one-word sentences. <laughs> um, he seems angry, I would say justifiably. He went out there and he championed a tour and they took $3 million away from him. And it seemed that after he did not make the cut at the Masters, that he was emotionally and maybe even psychologically, you know, bereft. What is the deal with Rory? Yeah, I'm, I think there's a disconnect there. Um, I, I agree with everything in terms of, of being the voice, basically, for the, for the tour in this, in this battle. Um, but I think on Rory's end, he is so desperate to get that green jacket to complete the Grand Slam. He was playing some of his best golf, and, and I think privately he thought this was the year he was going to win. And he, he rolls in and, and just throws up a stinker, which, which happens. Yeah. Funny game. And I think he put so much into the Masters, and to get so little out of it, it was, it was almost devastating. And he's, he's got to reset, basically, for the, for the rest of the year. You get one crack at the Masters, it's over. You know, it's time to move on. Um, but the, but the, the more curious thing to me about Rory is that this guy is really good, as you know, a lot of talent, and he's gone almost nine years without winning a major. Yeah. And that's a long time. And at some point you have to ask yourself, what is going on? I mean, Tiger went 11 years, but Tiger also had four back surgeries and two knee surgeries and 110 cocktail waitresses, and we can go on. He had a lot going on. <laughs> uh, and so it's understandable. I'm not saying it's excusable, but it's understandable, yes. you know, why he was off the rails and why it was 11 years between majors. Rory, you know, why hasn't he won? And I, I think part of him is starting to, it's, it's starting to get into his head a little bit of, I've got to win another major, and he's putting a lot of, um, you know, a lot of pressure on himself. Um, I will get you out of here on this, and you mentioned Tiger, and it gives me the opportunity to ask this. Are we ever going to actually see him play again? Yes. 
<clears throat> I have no idea, but I'm trying to give you a real, you know, authoritative answer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's I, I, he's got to be done for the year. Yes, um, certainly. For sure. I mean, and, and somebody had once said too, when uh, coming off the accident in L.A., um, you know, you can you can put the bones back together and everything, but they always thought arthritis in the these medical people. They always thought arthritis in the ankle was going to be one of the biggest issues going forward. And, you know, that may or may not be the, uh, the case done for the year, but uh, you know, tiger being tiger, he just, there's just no, no real quit in him when it comes to wanting to prove people wrong and to compete again. I would, I would be surprised if we didn't see him in the, in the Bahamas at the end of the year. And, you know, I think he'll, I think he'll tee it up next year. I you have a winner. Summer. You have a PGA guy where you say, if I had to put $5 down, I'd put it on this guy. Say that one more time. I'm not sure. What I, I mean, do you have do you have somebody that, at the PGA right now that you're looking that you're thinking to yourself? I better get ready for this on Sunday afternoon because I think this guy can win. I would. You you can't get away from Rom, and you can't get away from Scheffler. Um, people forget how good Scheffler is. This guy hasn't finished worse than 12th this year, and he's really good, even though he may not excite you the way Rom does. Right. Um, and and the one I would kind of look at too is is Dustin. Because he's just playing really good right now, and he's a good player, uh, and and Jason Day, yeah, another guy. And and this is the point, Tony. There's so many good players today, and you think, man, Rory is just the best I've seen, and Dustin's the best I've seen. I think you forget when you go back to Jason Day, back in about 15 or 16, there was not a single weakness. You wondered how this guy was ever going to lose. He was chipping great, makes everything he looks at, drives it long and straight, um, and he's he just won, you know last week and coming in on on great form be fun to watch that's the all, outlier that's by fun. the way i'm throwing i'm gonna throw a cameron young at you too okay this guy has not won on tour yet and this guy is really really good that's the guy you whose know, dad is the club pro at sleepy hollow right sleepy hollow yeah. yeah it was one of the great moments at the british last year when some some british writer looked at his guide and said i see you went to high school in the bronx i think you went to fordham prep he goes, is it amazing to you to have gone from the Bronx and here you are leading at St. Andrews? And Cameron looked at him and said, my dad was the head pro at Sleepy Hollow. I didn't have it all that tough. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you love Cam Young right there. Very, yeah. very good player. And, uh, you know, the PGA is known for guys, you know, breaking through when you least expect it. Yeah. Thank you, Doug. Thanks very much. Thanks, Tony. Doug Peterson. Uh, Doug Ferguson. Doug Peterson is the coach at Jacksonville. I always in my mind say Doug Peterson, Doug Ferguson from the Associated Press. We'll take a break. We'll have email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. Tony's got notes from you. And he's got your emails too Tony gets shoes for free and he's got Tillamook ice cream <laughs> Tony's got a mailbag on the show Tony's got a mailbag segment four Tony your emails they're not on the screen Nigel prints them out for Tony to read Tony's got a 
That's the first time I've heard that. That's Sean. <laughs> yes. That's great. That's Can't You Hear Me Knock? Yep, that's right. That's wonderful. Yeah, we great. miss Sean. <laughs> we do. Yeah, Sean, How do we this, get Sean? This totally makes up for when you put in Walter Cronkite's autobiography instead of the show for a couple days. <laughs> How do we get Sean back on the show? Segment love four. It. Very exciting. <laughs> Want to do the Bethesda Bagel ad? Bethesda Bagels. We love them. We got that's the fresh really bagels today. The fresh, freshly baked sesame bagels. We oh, love those. Yes. about that. Um, all you need to do is go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you you will be thrilled. And before we get to the mailbag, let me say, can't see nothing in front of me. Can't see nothing coming up behind. Make my way through the darkness. Can't feel nothing but this chain that binds me. Lost track of how far I've gone. How far I've gone, how high I've climbed. On my back's a 60-pound stone. On my shoulder, a half-mile line. That, of course, is The Rising. That is Bruce Springsteen. Um, and it's it's a great piece of work. The yes. entire album the is album a great piece haunting. of work. It's a great piece of work. New Peloton series. Thanks to Boss. our guests today, Doug Ferguson, Liz Clark, Andy Byer. And Andy Byer, yes. Well, you Sorry. name right down, Andy Byer. <laughs> Thanks as well to today's sponsors, Indochino, Grammarly, and ZipRecruiter. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. Get the show through Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. I might have to change the code uh, a little sooner than next month, but <laughs> yeah, because TK5 is still active, <laughs> and I think it has motivated a certain first baseman. Nice. Got a couple more. Alan Bubis writes a note. You know, maybe he's not the worst player in baseball. He's got a good batting average. He's terrible. He's terrible. <laughs> it's a team of And they singles. didn't win, did they? They didn't win the game. No. Uh, a request from Steve the Sycophant. The Herndon Regional Wind Ensemble will perform a free concert this Sunday, May 21st at 2.30 p.m. at South Lakes High School in Western Virginia. Directed by Dr. Lawrence Walker, we will be playing a variety Walker. of toe tappers to brighten your day. Mm. Our musicians range in age. From a couple of octogenarians, me included, to recent high school graduates. Come one, come all. Autographs will be available after the performance. Once again, that's this Sunday, 2.30 p.m., South Lakes High School in Reston, Virginia. Isn't that where Grand Hill went? Didn't he go to South Lakes? Uh, yes, I believe he did. Thought I'll he did. check that. From Ramsey in uh, San Diego, formerly in Arlington. I'm catching up on your episodes. I'm listening to the May 4th podcast. And to my delight, I heard you read an email from Joe Schultz of the Pacers Running Store. He and his wife, through the store, have been organizing weekly community runs all through the Arlington and D.C. area for years. My wife and I used to join them every Saturday morning till we moved to San Diego. Please tell him I say hello. Through the years of running with him, his wife, and the rest of the group, we developed a great group of close friends to the point where we had an entire table of runner friends at our wedding. Joe included. We found a <clears throat> running store and group out here in San Diego, but the sense of community and bonding that we felt with the Pacers group is unmatched. I fly back to D.C. for work every four months or so, but I haven't yet been able to see them or join them on one of their runs. If you could let them know, we also have a son now, a five-month-old named Michael. He's not named after your Michael. He's not really named after any Michael. We just like the name. You know. Middle name? Uh, we don't know what the Michael middle name Phillip? is. Joe really knows his stuff. <laughs> and if you haven't already taken him up on his offer for a shoe fitting, I would recommend that you do so. That's nice. From Joe Farrand or Farrand in Orlando, Florida. I've been a millennial little since 2015, listened faithfully to each episode. I've even had two jingles played on the podcast. The talk of connective tissue of the show has kept me vigilant during each mailbag section, hoping that I too would hear a name I might recognize. Each email from someone in Missouri, my native home or Florida where I now reside, catch my ear, but alas, no name has been familiar. All this changed last week, however. As I was listening to the episode from Steve Spurrier Day, 5 and 11, not too good. I heard the name Ethan Newman, New York, by way of Lockridge, Iowa, and my heart stopped. Could this be my Ethan Newman, the handsome 6'5", lean, acting, and lighting machine that was my roommate during our tenure at Simpson College in Iowa, the Juilliard of the Midwest? I replayed the email several times before texting my old buddy to find out it was him. In the decades since our graduation, we've taken different roads. 
I got married, became a teacher, start a family, <coughs> excuse me, in Orlando, where Ethan moved to New York, where he's a modern day Casanova and rising star in the theater world for his beautiful lighting designs. We jumped into the whirlpool of life with vigor, but our friendship withered. Besides our yearly virtual reunion for our fantasy football draft, I've lost contact with a hilarious, warm, and special friend. Because of your show, I now have a constant point of contact with him. Thank you for the two hours of laughter and companionship and for reuniting two friends who lost their connection in the rush that is our world. Very nice. That's lovely. From Chris, oh, this is going to be hard to pronounce. Let me see if there's a key. He just calls himself Chris the Therapist in Salem, Mass. But it looks like Coca-Zella. Not sure if this is one in a million, but this one was too strange not to share. Every Wednesday, I listen to two podcasts as I go about my day, usually while driving to work or writing therapy notes after seeing clients. One is the Judge John Hodgman Show, in which the writer and humorist, whom you might recall from The Daily Show, if you ever had insomnia in the early 2010s, I never watched The Daily Show, not one minute. I just didn't. I missed it. Tries to settle the petty disputes of his listeners. The other, of course, Tony Kornheiser Show, in which the writer and television personality tries to settle his own petty disputes with the aid of his listeners. Uh, last Wednesday, I listened to your show and John's back-to-back as I drove up to Maine for a long weekend to contemplate the nature existence as one does when visiting Maine. You can only imagine my surprise when both pods featured listeners writing in about the dairy cow population and milk production of the Azores. You can then imagine my further surprise when fellow little Mark Grath identified his current location as Hill Air Force Base in Salt Lake City, the very place that John's listener Kate and her husband are leaving the Azores for in short order. Is there some kind of Azores to Utah pipeline that I've never heard of? How far does one have to travel from Salt Lake City to find Portuguese wine? Will Kate and her husband meet Mark? Can the connective tissue of this show permeate all other podcasts? Like they said in the old Tootsie Pop commercials, the world may never know. P.S. It's getting warm on the North Shore, so the traffic between Marblehead and Rivera is getting worse along the beaches. Um, from Sean Johnson in La Plata, Maryland. I spent Friday beaming with pride as my daughter graduated with her mechanical engineering degree from Vanderbilt University. Good job, Sydney. The ceremony had a lot of downtime, so I got to listen to the Thursday pod. The show opened by recounting the book party for Luke Russer. You shared that you met Punchbowl's Jake Sherman and his wonderful wife Irene, who I worked with 15 years ago, and NBC talking heads Peter Alexander and Kristen Welker. But we all wanted to know, was Ari Melber there? <laughs> Needs to get to DC Insider Events if he's going to finally meet Mr. Tony. Who? Uh, I don't think he was there. <laughs> who's okay. That? Who's that? Okay. <laughs> David Epstein, New York City. BTI On the May guy. 10th podcast, you described Donald Trump as indefatigable. Several decades ago, there was a one-word advertisement for the up-and-coming NBC News commentator Chris Wallace. And that is when the word indefatigable entered my lexicon. And when I learned it was pronounced indefatigable, not indefatigable. Um, all right. Okay. Oh, so, uh, yes. What did Melber say? He say Bill? yes. Yeah. Okay. 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 <laughs> Despite its etymology, you missed when we did that thirty <laughs> seconds ago. Yeah. I, you know, I lose my memory. I'm old. Despite its etymology, indeed, being the Latin for fatigue, the word is essentially the Willamette Valley of compliments, with the accent coming not where you'd expect it. While not currently a Grammarly client, if available, I'd like to be considered for the position of official etymologist of the Tony Corners Show. If so honored, I can, in a subsequent letter, explain how everyone is using the phrase begs the question incorrectly. Yeah, he ought to do that. Um, what is bugs? That's not... Words is etymology, but bugs sounds like etymology, doesn't it? The study of bugs? Entomology. Ent- okay, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yes. What I said. And also, he says, on a whole other note, my favorite Secretariat story was told by Gary Trudeau, who relayed that he heard a woman tell a TV sportscaster... Following Secretariat's Triple Crown Racing victory after the traumas of Vietnam and Watergate, Secretariat restored my faith in humanity. That's a little much. Uh, Josh Cohn, 
Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. So did you get your Father's Day present? I did. <laughs> I did. Indeed. Claudia Rogers, Westminster, Maryland. Sorry I'm late to the conversation, but I was in Scotland enjoying my first trip abroad since the pandemic. Tell Michael that a great way to extend the life of your grapes is to freeze them. Put them in small individual containers, and they will make great snacks for the boys, especially during the hot summer days. If they're now old enough where I, can, I will trust them with frozen grapes. That would be good. From Not Peter Ward in no. Dundee, Scotland, who writes, I am sneaky short. <laughs> Long time little, first time emailer from Dundee in Bonnie, Scotland, just across the water from St. Andrews and all the walk spoiling that goes on there. There is store or shop, um, as Nigel would and we would call them, called the Cheesery in Dundee. My first thought was that La Cheesery had expanded globally and I landed in my hometown. And my second thought was how fortunate I was that they decided to locate in my hometown and I needed to pay a visit. On entering the store, I was greeted by a fine selection of cheeses, chutneys, and pickles. Biscuits for cheese and some meat-based products, too. Some artisan stuff. Some tested by volcanologists. I opened with a hearty hello and began to discuss the hot topics of the day, the increased price of produce, the hazardous parking at Trader Joe's, the varying drop you get on running shoes, the service at running (laughs) shops, and for the old-timers, gas station chicken. Sadly, this fell on deaf ears, so I picked some cheese for my evening meal, and then I asked for the TK Little Discount. At the counter to be greeted by the TK salute. This confirmed my view that this indeed is part of La Cheeserie's global expansion and the inexorable takeover of the world by us littles. As I left, I bid them a hearty the cheeserie with a knowing wink and left. <laughs> I have no connection with the shop or the store other than being a customer. They kept it going with cheese deliveries twice weekly during the pandemic, and it's a great place to buy your dairy products should you ever be in Dundee or this part of Scotland. Isn't that nice? The cheeserie. Yeah. Um, from Ruffin Sykes in Charlotte, North Carolina. I think there's really only one thing you can say the next time you encounter a pileated woodpecker. Big guy, big guy, big guy, big guy. <laughs> P.S. The construction on Dilworth Road East is ongoing, in case you were any of the littles. Thank you for that. Wanted to know. From Joe Anderson in Alexandria, Virginia. Who you got in the Preakness? I got a tip from Henry Gondorf's guy, Kid Twist, to place it on Lucky Dan. <laughs> no, no, thank you for that. And from David Andrews. Not that David Andrews in Adelaide, Australia. Sitting at my desk at work, listening to the Tuesday podcast. Salt discussion. Father gives son the gift of salt. I quote, take the large. You're my son. <laughs> Utterly brilliant. <laughs> Got on your bike tonight, everyone, as always. Do wear white. Good evening and thank you for filling these seats tonight. Chris Claiborne, Chris McAllister, Dante Culpepper, Cade McNown, Troy Edwards, John Tate, and finally, finally, Anthony McFarland. Were they on the take? Were they on the graft? Were they just stupid? Were they all daft? The 14 players taken before Booger McFarland in the 99 draft. Booger McFarland in the 99 draft. Tim Couch, number one. Donovan McNabb, Akili Smith, Andrew James, Riggy Williams, Tory Holt, Champ Bailey, David Boston, Chris Claiborne, Chris McAllister, Dante Culpepper, Cade McNown, Troy Edward, John Tate, then finally, finally, Anthony McFarland. Were they on the take? Were they on the graft? Were they just stupid? Were they all daft? The 14 players taken before Booger McFarland in the 99 draft. Booger McFarland in the 99 draft.
Something died in my garage. Yes, indeed. Something died in my garage. I don't know what it could be. It's a mystery to me. It might be a possum. It might be a raccoon. It might be my crazy neighbor who plays a bassoon. Something died in my garage. That's right. I alerted my entourage. Down, I 
with almost astronomic Son of a gun, it was a worst of the worst, a, a dried up homeless comic And he was wearing a corsage Something that 